This is a Federal News Network podcast. Imagine a federal office with holes in the roof, birds flying in, mold everywhere, and a staff untrained for its crucial public safety mission. Hard to believe. Yet that's what the Interior Department's Office of Inspector General found at the U.S. Park Police Dispatch Center for the Washington, D.C. area. Joining me in studio with details, Interior IG Mark Lee Greenblatt. Mr. Greenblatt, good to have you in. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So how did this come to light in the first place? Was it someone calling up and saying, oh, my God, you got to check out this office? No, this arose in the context of our review of the Park Police's clearing of Lafayette Park in the fallout of the George Floyd killing in Minnesota. And in the context of that investigation, that review, we found that the Park Police wasn't recording its communications as it should have been. And so we started pulling the thread on that. And that led us down the line to some additional problems with respect to the radio communications. And that, in turn, led us to this dispatch center where we started pulling the threads yet again and found some significant problems. There were some whistleblowers there that identified some concerns to us. And then we started, as I said, pulling the threads and identifying some serious problems with respect to the dispatch center. So this all was a fallout from the Lafayette Park review a year or so ago. Wow. One thing leading to another. So you found both physical plant problems and also operational problems. Let's talk about the building itself, because it's just hard to believe that a federal facility would be like this. Absolutely. This is one thing I would recommend for all of your listeners is to go to the report and actually look at the pictures. You know, you described some of the things that we found in your opening. We found that there were, you know, holes in the roof there and a flock of birds had infested in their space. And there are bird droppings literally all over desks and computers and things along those lines. Just imagine that. Picture that in your mind. We have a picture of it in our report. I'd invite your readers to go check it out. There were also significant problems with respect to wiring. There's a picture there of wiring that it's just begging for a fire hazard. And there were a number of other problems. Water, black mold was suspected to be growing in the ceiling and the walls and everything. I mean, this is just something that, you know, I think your listeners will appreciate. This is not a good environment for, especially for federal employees. This is not the space they should be going into. And where is this building and what is its main function in the district, in the region? So it's in the Anacostia area, and it is a dispatch center. So this gets 911 calls. Uh, They don't receive a lot of direct 911 calls, but they do get 911 calls from other jurisdictions about matters that are happening on National Park Service land that's covered by the park police. And so they receive these 911 calls in this dispatch center and deal with them. It also is a hub for communications with respect to park police officers all throughout the Washington, D.C. area. So this is a really critical center. And what they're doing is dealing with emergency situations, potentially life-threatening situations. And we've got to make sure that not only are the facilities, you know, in good shape, but also that operationally, that they can do what they need to do. We uncovered a number of additional problems with respect to that piece of the story as well. Yeah, what were some of those? For example, I saw in the report in one case when an officer pushes the emergency button in the dispatch center, they couldn't tell who was pushing the button. That's right. So they would have to go through a roll call of all the officers on shift at that time and say, was it you? Was it you? Was it you? In another way, they had a spreadsheet that was located in a different locked room from where the dispatch center folks were that they could match up some of the codes and determine who was signaling. Well, this is, you know, potentially emergency situations. We don't have time to, you know, go through a roll call of all the officers. I mean, who knows? I mean, this could involve public safety. Someone could be having a heart attack or there could be a shooting. Uh, there 
there could be a park police involved shooting. And, you know, one of the officers sounds the alarm on their radio, but they have no way of knowing who it was or where they are. So this is a significant operational problem that we found beyond the flock of birds and beyond the black mold that was suspected to be growing in the walls. We're speaking with Mark Lee Greenblatt. He's Inspector General of the Interior Department. And also this dispatch center and the officers interact with other jurisdictions in those counties. There's D.C., Prince George's County, Montgomery County, maybe others. So it must be kind of a bad mismatch between what might be up-to-date police operations, say like Montgomery County, and then calling into the park police and finding this crazy medieval type of setup. Well, it was certainly not up to standards. And that was something that we identified was that their standards, you know, weren't very tight, frankly. But we said whatever those standards were, they were not very defined. But whatever they would be, these didn't meet them. And so, you know, that I think would be problematic if they're trying to engage with their counterparts, as you said, throughout the DMV, because their properties extend all over the place. Everything from the National Mall to GW Parkway, you know, it's it's everything in between. So, yes, absolutely. They're interacting with other folks who might have very updated, different type of uh, operational capacity. And you also found issues with the way people were trained and educated in their jobs. And so there were some deficiencies there too. Yeah, or not trained. That was a big part of it. Yes, uh, Tom, I mean, what you said is exactly right. We found significant problems with respect to the staffing levels, just the number of people there but also some significant deficiencies with respect to training of the folks who were there. We found that in some situations, they were pulling in park police officers off the street to then man the dispatch center. Well, they weren't trained in that way. And these are significant. These are high stakes moments, you know, when you're talking about 911 calls. And there is specific training that needs to occur. And so that was a disturbing piece was that not only were they understaffed, but the some of the staff that were there we're not trained at all in this. And so that was one of the recommendations we made was to bolster that, ensure consistent staffing and ensure, you know, consistent training throughout. Yeah, because dispatch itself is a particular discipline within the realm of law enforcement. And it's something that needs specific training. That's absolutely right. Also with the with the operations, you know, in terms of the mechanics of what they're doing, the computer systems and that sort of thing. These are high stakes moments. As I said, you know, these could involve life or death situations. You know, these are 911 calls just sure. like you have in, in any situation. And we need to ensure that they are operationally sound. And that was a consistent problem that we found was just those failings and just the underlying machinery. They didn't have callback mechanisms. So, for example, if they're on a 911 call where someone's describing a significant problem that's underway and and the call gets dropped, right? You can imagine in an emergency situation that would happen, right? They had no callback mechanism. They had no way of knowing who it was or where they were. And so that's a significant problem. They also had no recording of those calls. So for example, if you do have a call and they say the address, but again, it's in a panicky moment, the address isn't quite clear. Normally, 911 centers have playback. So they record and then they can just play it back and say, what was that address again? And then they can send that to the officers on the street and they have the correct address. They had no recording and playback. Well, this is crucial stuff for a 911 center. So these are things that we found and identified. And, and truth be told, the park police is taking it seriously and, and we think they're making you know changes uh, that hopefully will, will resolve these. But it sounds like the changes they need to make are expensive. Well, sure. I mean, they, uh, you know, I think that's that's like some, a roof on the on the dispatch. Well, center. yeah, right. Exactly. That's that's pretty significant. My understanding is they're working with a contractor to fix those issues on a short term basis right now. But yeah, I think some of these things have gone 
unfixed, if you will, for years. So hopefully they can dedicate some resources to fix them now. And from the IG standpoint, this is kind of a illustration of a bigger theme for you, isn't it? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think three things emerge from my perspective. One is just the merits, what we've been talking about, the actual problems that we found. That's pretty significant. The other thing that I think that's significant is this, I would say, is a great microcosm of what good government oversight can be. This is something that we found in the context of one review, pulled the thread a little bit and found these other significant problems. And these problems affect public health and safety, park police officer health and safety, and the folks who were working in the dispatch center themselves, you know, their health and safety. So for us, this is not, you know, a standard audit of financial issues. This is, you know, public health and safety, the health and safety of our own employees in the department. And so I thought that was a great microcosm because then you also have you know, the fact that we told senior leadership in the department and they acted quickly. They took it seriously, they acted quickly, and they're taking corrective actions now based on what we found. And that, to me, it's a great microcosm of just good government oversight. And that, that I think it's a good story to tell. Mark Lee Greenblatt is Inspector General at the Interior Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us on. We'll post this interview together with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.